Well, let me begin by just uh, making two very obvious statements. One is this. Uh, right now, at this very time in the age you and I live in, Jesus, the Son of God, is, is not here presently, physically, on this earth because he's, he's resurrected and he's ascended up into heaven. forgot my clicker here. The second statement's this. God is still doing his work in the world today. People are still being saved. Churches are still being planted. Christians are still growing. People are still hearing the gospel. How is that happening? If Jesus is not physically here, then how does that happen? And you find the answer in this passage. Because God's presence is still here in the world today, and his presence is in you. Those of you who know Christ, his presence is in us, in his temple. So here's Jesus, the night before he would die a cruel death on the cross, kind of his parting speech, what we call the upper room discourse. Jesus here is telling his disciples that you don't need to worry, you don't need to fret, don't have troubled hearts, don't be concerned, don't fall into fear, don't fall back into despair, don't do that. Why? Because I'm really not leaving you. My presence will still be there. And he's going to teach them how this work that you and I are a part of today, how does this work happen? Where does the power come from? How can we have power to do what God commands us to do? And Jesus is going to make a point, even though I'm going away, you as his followers will have every resource, every strength, everything you need to be who God wants you to be. So I'd ask you this today. Are you thoroughly convinced that right now you have everything you need to be a godly individual? Are you convinced of that? Do you have everything you need to be a godly spouse? And you might think, I need a better spouse to be a godly spouse. But is, does God say that's what you need? Or maybe that I need to be a holy or a pure person. Do I have everything that I need? And God's word will make it very clear, you do have everything you need. And that brings us to the subject that for many is kind of a mystery to them. It's, it's kind of a source of, of confusion and, and a lot of misunderstandings. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit. Jesus will teach you why you can have this power, how you can have this power, and it's through the third person of the Trinity who lives in Every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this subject for many, it scares them. It concerns them. Because there's a ton of mysticism that's out there. But instead of scaring us and, and confusing us, according to this passage, in John 14, John 15, John 16, what this subject should do for us, it should give us a lot of encouragement. It should give you a great deal of comfort. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. In fact, the fact that he lives inside of you should be a great source of assurance for you today. And so here's where we're going with this. And here's the one thing I want you to learn from this passage today is this, is that obedience must be motivated by love and empowered by the Spirit of God. So if you've ever wondered what the role of the Holy Spirit is in your life, in your life as a Christian, as a follower of the Savior, you're going to learn a lot in these next few passages. You're going to learn this. Nowhere does Jesus say that the Helper is going to come and help you speak in tongues. Or he's going to come 
He's going to help you have apostolic sign gifts or be slain in the Spirit or give you new revelation from God. That's not anywhere in this passage. But what you will find is this. He will comfort you. He will guide you. He will lead you. He will convict you. That's what the Spirit of God is doing right now. He will teach you. He will teach you from God's Word. And what you're going to find today is how the Holy Spirit helps those who cannot help themselves. Is that how you would classify yourself today? I am somebody that without grace, without God's help, I cannot help myself. How does he do that? How does God do that? And he does it, first of all, by giving you hearts that obey out of love. Hearts that obey out of love. We know this, there's, there's all kinds of bad ways to motivate people and to get them to do the right things. You can use things like guilt, manipulation, fear, but not a one of those is God's method. God has something deeper for us, and Jesus presents a different motive. Now, according to Jesus, we do what we do because we do what we love. Now think, even here at church on Sunday morning, before you came to church, you had a million options of things you could have, been, could have been doing. A million options, especially on a beautiful day like this. And even as you're sitting there right now, you've got 10 million options sitting there in your hand probably, in a smartphone, of a million things you can do instead of listening to the word. But I trust today as we're hearing the word preached and as we're listening to the word and being fed from the word, that we do what we do because we do what we love. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 3, verse 19. This is really what it comes down to. This is the crux of the matter. This is judgment that's come into the world, that men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Why do we do what we do? It's because of what we love. And according to Jesus... The reason people obey him is because of love, because they love him. One thing you notice about the Apostle John, a New Testament author who God used a lot, one word he uses a lot is the word love. And he contrasts the two. Here's love, here's hate. Here's truth, here's lies. Here's light, and here's darkness. And we just studied what Jesus means by the word love back in John chapter 13. It's manifested in how we serve one another. How we love one another. How does God want you to love him? With everything that you are. With all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And now the Savior, who's openly demonstrated this, who's openly manifested what it means to really love one another, he demands that now of us, that his followers now would serve him and obey him Because we love him. You want to take note of this. This love is not sentimental. It's not feelings-based. It's not emotion-based. It's got a truth. It's got a foundation to it. And that foundation is love for the Savior. So according to Jesus, the mark of a true follower of Jesus is their love. How do they love him? How do we really love him? And it manifests itself with this word, obedience obedience. Jesus says four times in this chapter, verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24, 
If you love me, it will be manifested in how you obey him and how we follow him. In fact, John writing this same passage that we're going to look at here, this is decades after the upper room discourse when he was personally with Jesus, the Spirit of God inspired him to write these words. Read this out loud with me together if you would. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The obedience that Jesus has in mind here is this, that you follow his example and you follow his teaching. What kind of example did Jesus give? What kind of teaching did Jesus give? So obeying Jesus out of a heart of love means several things. It means we'll love one another. Now think of what the immediate context is here. Jesus had just washed his disciples' feet. And remember back in chapter 13, verse 35? Look at your Bible there. Look back to chapter 13. Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The previous verse, he said, You must do this. This has to be an exemplary manifestation in your life that you love one another, or we have no claim of knowing the Savior. It's going to be manifested. It's also going to be manifested in this. You'll not just obey the Lord. You'll delight in it. You'll delight in obeying him. I think you know this, that you delight in doing things for people who you love. If you love someone, you really delight in doing things for them. I'll give you an example of this. There is no human being on this earth who I love more than my wife. Not one. Not even my own children. No church member. Nothing. I, I love my wife more than any other human being. So when I do things for my wife, if I, if I buy her flowers unexpectedly, if I take her out to dinner, if I buy her something, you know, it, to me it's a joy. It's a delight to do that for her. And, and those of you who have children, you love your children, you like to do things for them. And you have grandchildren, and you probably like to do things for your grandchildren more than you like to do for your own children. Amen, grandparents? And, and you just like to do that because you love them. Now think of this for a moment. When you really love the Savior, it's going to be a real delight to do things for him, to obey him. It's not a drudgery. It's not like a pain in our back. It's a great delight to do things for him. And not only that, you'll have assurance of your salvation. What's one way that you know that you're saved? Well, listen to 1 John 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. If we obey him. You'll also recognize this. To love him for who he is means you recognize that Jesus is worthy of your love. He's worthy of it. Unlike any human being you know, to some extent, they don't deserve the love you give to them. But Jesus does. He's worthy of that love. The old hymn we sing, a lot of times we take communion, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and what else, friends? My all. So how does God help those who who cannot help themselves? He gives you a different heart. And with that heart is different affections. With different affections is different desires. And with different desires, you have different things that please you now. And now, there's a great delight in love that manifests itself 
in obedience to the Lord. Wouldn't it be great if we were recognized as a people that when we obey the Lord, we have great joy in the Lord? Wouldn't that be awesome? That when we serve him, there's a great joy because we love him. And knowing we do, what we do for him is not fear, it's not guilt, it's not manipulation, it's this. It's love. It's love. Because if we're guilted into doing something, that's not real love. But if we do something because we love him more than anything, that is biblical obedience, friends. It's because we love him. Do you love him today, church? Say amen. And I pray that that love in all of our hearts and all of our lives would be growing. That that would be a growing love. Here's a second way that God helps those who cannot help themselves. He gives you himself. He gives you help from God himself. So we have a situation here. I don't know if you've ever come across a passage of Scripture when you you come to that passage and you think, I agree with this, I think it's good, I don't debate it, this is right. I just don't know if I can obey this. You ever had that before? Where you come to this, where am I going to get the strength, the power to do this? Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Jesus will teach on something here that was very obscure to his audience that was very familiar with the Old Testament. Now remember the point of John's gospel. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And what he makes very clear here is this. There is only one group of people that really truly knows God's presence. It's those who are in Christ. Those who know the Savior. And take note here of the word in verse 16, the helper. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Translated advocate sometimes, or sometimes counselor. Those are both credible translations. And in other times, uh, when you get to John 16, the word's used in a legal sense, as somebody like an attorney who represents you. But this word literally means this. It's somebody who comes alongside you, and they help you. I think back when I first learned how to ride a two-wheel bicycle, How many of you remember when you did that? Okay, I had this big banana seat bike, and I had my training wheels, and I'm riding this training, my bike up and down the sidewalk, and I wanted to get to be one of the big kids and take the training wheels off, so my mom and my stepdad were helping me, and along the way, and I couldn't do it on my own yet, and when I finally got to the point I could do it on my own, I thought I could ride that thing all by myself until I fell, and then I fell again. And I fell again, and I fell again, and I got a lot of scars to prove how many times I've fallen off of a bicycle. But I remember that first time riding this banana seat bike down the street there. I thought it was the biggest thing in the world. I made sure everybody knew about it. I knocked on doors, I rang doorbells, and if I would have had a Facebook account, I would have said, I'm riding a two-wheel bicycle. I thought it was the biggest thing in the world. But you see, that's not how the Christian life works. You will never be on your own. You will never be outside of the realm of needing God's help. You will always need his help. And this word here, the helper, gives this connotation. Another of the same kind. Meaning this, this helper, 
He's God. And this third person of the Trinity lives inside of you. You as a follower of Christ, he lives inside of you. And Jesus here is promising someone who would stand in his place, will be there for his followers, who will indwell his people there in verse 17. And he's called here the spirit of truth. And I think of John 17, verse 17. How does God guide his people today? He guides them with his word. He says, sanctify them through your truth, which is what? Your word is what, friends? Truth. And so here he's called the spirit of truth, which teaches you this. He will only point you to truth. He'll never point you to lies. He'll always guide you by that truth. He'll comfort you by that truth. He'll convict you by that truth. He'll teach you by that truth. It always goes back to this, because he is, according to this verse, the spirit of what, friends? The spirit of truth. Now, it's a contrast to who Satan is. Jesus said in John 8, verse 44, when he was talking to the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and he was a liar from the beginning. But those who are in Christ are expected to follow the truth. That's a mark of those who are in Christ. Now, here's Jesus' point with all this, where he says this in verse 17. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, and he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Here's his point. You are a follower of Jesus. You will never be alone. You will never be alone again. He'll always be with you. And in all the ways that Jesus spent time with his disciples, he comforted them, he taught them, he, he rebuked them at times. He led them. He guided them. They traveled with him. They saw how he handled those who hated him. All of that that they saw him do, and the way Jesus guided his followers, now, today, the Spirit of God guides and directs God's people. And notice an important verse here in verse 17, an important word. It says, cannot, even the Spirit of truth, look at the beginning, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, I want to ask you this. What is a sinner unable to do? Can I ask you that? What can a lost person do and what can they not do? Now, according to Jesus here, outside of the Spirit of God, they cannot understand the gospel. No one, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, can call Jesus Lord except by who? The Spirit. The Spirit of God has to work. And the Spirit of God uses the means of the Word to work in someone's heart. They have to understand the gospel. James Boyce is helpful in understanding this. The verses about the Holy Spirit that we're studying make this plain. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in leading men and women to Christ, no one can either see, know, or receive spiritual things. They cannot see because they're spiritually blind, according to Jesus. They cannot know because these things have been spiritually discerned. They cannot receive the Holy Spirit or the Lord Jesus because, as Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So this brings up an important point. Those of you who are here today, and you may not be a Christian, and you may have never yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you this. We're, we're incredibly grateful that you're here today. And we have been praying for you all week, and I'm going to tell you how we've been praying for you. We have been praying that when you come and you hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins, 
that Jesus was buried and he rose again from the dead on the third day, that God would do a work in your heart as I share this message with you, this message of love and forgiveness and mercy and grace and adoption and acceptance and eternal life and peace and joy that is all found in Christ, that we as Christians would say, we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amen, Christians? We know that. We, we are praying that God would open up your eyes to the truth of that gospel because Pastor Mike can't do that. I am completely unable to do that. I can't change your heart, but I've been praying for you that God would change your heart. And my prayer for you today, if, if you don't know Christ, that you'd have enough courage and enough humility to come up to me after the service and say, I need the Savior. I need him. And I need to know more about this. Or maybe right there in your pew, you would call out to the Savior right now in your heart. And say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need forgiveness of sins. I need to be cleansed. I need new life in Christ. And there's something else here that's really awesome for us who live in this age right now. Because I think this is an exciting time to live. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit kind of just made cameo appearances. He just kind of came every once in a while. In the New Testament, he permanently lives inside of us. He never leaves us. And he's inside of every believer without exception. In fact, Romans 8, verse 9, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to him. So that teaches you this, friends. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have God's presence. Are you a Christian today? You know the Lord? You have God's presence inside of you. He lives inside of you. That is why God refers to you as a temple. This is why you should see your body as a temple. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, if you would. Let's read this out loud together. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What makes a temple sacred? Well, normally it's because of what's inside of that temple. Christian friend, who lives inside of you? You're more than just blood and oxygen and organs. The very Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of you. That's an amazing truth. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So here's the thing. You can never expect to obey God without the presence of God. Just as I needed my parents to, drive, uh, to ride a bicycle without training wheels, you cannot live the Christian life without God's presence or without depending upon God's presence. And thankfully, that's exactly what God gives you. God doesn't give you more willpower. He doesn't give you manipulation or guilt or fear. Here's what God gives you. He gives you himself. The very person of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. So he's always there. He's there when you face temptation. And it seems unbearable. But friend, you're never alone. You're never by yourself. He's there when you read scripture and the spirit of God illuminates our minds. He's there when you share the gospel. He's there when you share the gospel with others and the spirit of God works. He's there when you seek to obey his commands, when you seek to love other people. He's there when it's difficult to submit to difficult human authority that's imperfect, but God commands you to submit to them. Friends, isn't it good to know he's there when you're discouraged, when you're in despair, in your deepest 
moments of darkness when it seems like there's no hope. Michael Horton, one theologian, put it this way, the Holy Spirit is the one who not only represents Christ, but makes him present and makes us present to him. So this means the the power to resist temptation, the power to make disciples for God's glory, the power to love holiness more than we love sin, the power to be the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter, the employee, the student that God wants you to be, the power to shine as a light in darkness in a very dark world, that power is not from the outside, that power is on the inside, and that inside is not your strength, it's the very Spirit of God who lives inside of you, the Holy Spirit of God. So every command in the Bible that God gives, and there's a bunch of them, and we realize that as Christians, but every command in the Bible that God gives you, he gives you the necessary power and the necessary strength to obey. And he also gives you this, his presence. And this is true of every believer here. Not just an elite group. It's true of every sincere follower of Christ whose sins are forgiven. You have the presence of God. You have the power of God. That's essentially what you need to obey God. Do we have everything we need, friends? Absolutely. Here's the third thing God gives you for those who need help, who cannot help themselves. And it's this. It's God's protection. It's his provision. And it's his guidance. Look at verse 18, if you would. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What comes to your mind when you hear the word orphan? For those of you who grew up with both sets of parents, that's hard to think about. But if you've ever been abandoned by a parent, this probably resonates with you a little bit. What comes to your mind when you hear the word orphaned? What comes to my mind immediately is abandonment. A parent just left their child. And Jesus here is saying, I'm not going to do that to you. Later on in the Bible, you're going to learn in Galatians chapter 4 about adoption. God adopts us into his family. And how does Jesus deal with loneliness? Feelings of abandonment. He comforts you with this promise. Look at verse 18. I will come to you. Could be referring to the Holy Spirit. Could be referring to Jesus after his resurrection. But here's the point. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. You will never be left without help. Look at verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Say these words with me if you're following with me. Because I live, you also will live. So why do we live? Why do we speak of eternal life so much? Why do we have so much confidence that we're going to have a new body one day? Where does that come from? It comes from words like this. Because he lives. And our life is dependent on his life. And there's a lot of things we depend on right now for physical life. So we have doctors, we have pharmacists, we have nutritionists. And praise God for them. Thankfully, they they help us live a physical life. But ultimately, if you're going to have eternal life, it has to come through his life. Only Jesus can give an indestructible eternal, joyful life. Just as he said in John 10, verse 10, the thief comes not before to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And look at verse 20, what he says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you and me, and I and you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is the person. He it is. Who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What a blessing. We're inseparable with the Savior. Not even death can break that bond forever and ever and ever. During Jesus' earthly ministry, they would eat with Jesus, travel with him, spend time with him, but it was always at a, at a person-to-person distance. He didn't live inside of them at that point. Today, the Spirit of God is inside of you. And what had to happen for that to happen? Jesus had to ascend up into heaven. And the Spirit would descend. And now the Spirit of God has indwelled every true believer. He's your seal. He's your guarantee. He's the one who will complete God's work of redemption in our lives. And it's interesting to think that Jesus... Even though he's left this planet and he's ascended up into heaven, we can know God now in a deeper way. Look what you read in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves them. There's things you know about your family because you live with them. There's things you know about your college roommate because you live with them. And because you are in Christ, there's things you will understand about the Savior that the unsaved world simply will not get. And these things are only understood by those who know him, and they love him, and they trust in him. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't love disobedient people, because he does. But they who know the Lord, they who love the Lord, they who obey the Lord are going to know him in a richer, more fuller way. What hinders that relationship? That's sin. It's sin that always hinders that relationship. And your own personal obedience to the Lord, that's going to determine how rich and how full that relationship is going to be. So if you don't want a real rich and deep and delightful relationship with the Lord, then that's going to be marked by disobedience. But if you enjoy him, if you delight in the Savior, then you're going to enjoy your relationship with him. It'll be the greatest delight of your life that you get to spend time with the Savior. One author put it this way. When you do what you want to do, instead of what Jesus wants you to do, it always, without exception, turns out bad. I have never, never regretted one moment of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've never regretted that, but I'll tell you what I have regretted. Countless episodes of disobedience to the Lord. Obedience to the Lord equals no regret. Disobedience to the Lord equals regret. And Jesus here says, I'll manifest myself to him, meaning I make myself known to obedient followers. And then he says here, we make our home with him. Same word used in John chapter 14 in the earlier part of the chapter. And God says here, he joyfully welcomes those who lovingly obey his commands. So what's the difference? Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. There were two Judases in Jesus' group of followers. This is not Iscariot. Said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So what's the difference between us and them? Are we better? Are we smarter? Notice, they're comfortable enough to ask a question. Thomas asked a question. Philip asked a question. Now you find here Judas asking a question. And here's what Jesus answers. Look at verse 33, 23. Rather. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we'll make our home with him. Enjoying God's presence, friend, is closely tied to your heartfelt obedience. 
Do you enjoy God's presence? There's going to be real heartfelt obedience. And if you look at verse 24, to put a bow on this, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Loving Jesus is revealed in how you respond to him. Loving Jesus is not necessarily revealed in how we sing to him. That can be a fruit of it. It's not necessarily revealed in what we say. It's most manifestly revealed in what we do. How do we obey him? How do we love him? Think of the two things that are just so elusive in this world today. Think of joy and think of peace. Read these words with me in Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The next chapter of John will deal extensively with this whole subject that this world cannot find and cannot give to you, and it's joy. It's joy. Joy and peace might be two of the most elusive things in this world. Real joy and real peace. But Christian friend, you whose sins are forgiven, washed under the blood of Calvary, the Holy Spirit inside you makes that possible. The vast majority of counseling that I've been involved in as a pastor over the years, we can narrow it down to two major things. In nearly two decades of ministry, two major subjects that when somebody comes and they, they've gotten to the point where things are just real messy, and sadly that's when things usually get to a pastor is when they're messy, it's usually not preemptive. But the two major things, the two major struggles that, that I have dealt with the most in counseling is this. One is pornography, the, the plague that is infecting the church worldwide today because of its easy accessibility and it's destroying marriages, it's destroying lives. That would be number one. Almost 90% of it is that. And then the other part would be this, is discouragement and depression. People in despair. They're just down in life. They're joyless. Because life hasn't met their expectations. They had one expectation of life and this is what God has brought. I've never had anybody say to me that they are overjoyed and full of peace and joy because they're living in sexual sin. That conversation has never happened. And, and I've never had anyone say to me that I'm so overjoyed and it's such a wonderful life to live a depressed and discouraging and joyless life. I've never had that conversation either. And one of the biggest struggles you have, even with Christians who believe the Bible, is this, is convincing them the power and the resources to overcome these enslaving sins in life, it's not outside you. You don't need a greater willpower. It's not the fact that you need to be stronger or you need to be smarter. The power you need for that, if you truly are saved, he's inside of you. He lives inside of you. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And the hope is not on the outside. The hope is on the inside. And so what God does for us, friends, he leads you on the path, and this is where real, true joy is. It's always in God's presence. It's always in God's presence. Friend, where do you find God's presence? 
I often kid with people. I hear people from time to time say, you know, you're in the church building and, and you can't go in the sanctuary with coffee because, you know, that's the sanctuary. And you can't bring water into the, into the sanctuary because, you know, that's the sanctuary. That's where God's presence is. And, and I'm not advocating here today that you bring your coffee and spill it on the carpet and make a big stain. I'm not advocating that. But I am saying this. This building right here does not contain the presence of God. Where is the presence of God? He's in you. He's in you. So even if this building wasn't here and a tornado blew it down, and I hope that never happens, you still have the presence of God. He lives inside of you. What's your greatest source of joy today? It cannot be from your job. And it cannot be from the circumstances of this world. It can't be from our physical condition. Praise God for that. It can't be from our age. That just keeps getting older and older and older. I love what Dan Anderson told me. We're not getting older. Our kids are just getting older. And it's not from that. Real joy, real joy comes from the presence of God. Look with me at Psalm 16, verse 11. And let's read these words together. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Your pathway to joy, friends, is the presence of God. You don't have to earn that presence. You don't have to buy that presence. If you truly know Christ is your Savior, you have that presence. And so, friends, today, obedience to God must be motivated by a love, a heartfelt love and a delight of knowing him and a love that's empowered by the Spirit of God. Everything you need to obey the commands of this book right now, you don't have to run to Walmart, you don't have to send money to some televangelist on TV, you you, you don't need a bigger brain, you don't need more muscle, you don't need that. Everything you need to be a godly person right now, it's there. And what a great source of hope that is. We have everything we need because God gives us himself. Let's bow for prayer together, shall we? And let's ask God's help as we seek to obey and love him. Father, I pray that it would be our motive, our heart's desire to love you with heartfelt obedience, to praise you, to glorify you by depending upon your presence and your power that is alive at work in our hearts and lives. Father, I pray our love for you would be sincere, that our love for you would be real and genuine and authentic, and that it would translate, Father, into a life of obedience. May you help us to avoid things like fear and guilt and manipulation. And may it be our heart's cry, Father, to obey you because we love you. And then to realize whatever you command us to do, you've given us the resources to follow through. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen.